Man, can we show the band some love? Appreciate Tanner leading us tonight. He always does a great job. And uh, the bass player is pretty cute. It's my wife, if you didn't know. Well, hey, uh, I don't know about you, but it, it's really good to be back. Uh, I know it's been a while. Tanner talked about it, but it seems like so long. I know some of you had some crazy summers. My summer was pretty crazy. Did a lot of traveling. Went to Spain, where my Spain people at. It was a lot of fun. We'll be going back next summer, by the way. And so if you are interested in going to Spain, helping with a church plant, we invite you to be a part of that. Also, this spring break, we're going to be going to Baltimore. And so if you're like, hey, I don't know about going out of the country, but you think that you can do in-country, we invite you to be a part of that. We'll be helping with a church plant there as well. Um, but the semester is now underway. Some of you are in school. Some of you are just working. Some of you are just trying to figure it out. But if you've been on campus, it's pretty funny because you can tell who's a freshman and who's not. Where are my freshmen at? Just give a shout-out to my freshmen. Maybe an arm raise. Nope. Okay, cool. Well, at, on campus, you can see them because they're the ones that get to class really early. You know what I'm saying? You see, like, what are y'all doing here so early? Oh, they're freshmen. It's okay. Or you walk around campus and you see, you know, this, this panic on their panic look on their face, people looking at a map trying to figure out where are we going, where are we going. It's the freshmen, you know, and they've already mapped out their course. They know exactly from this building to that building, it will take me one minute and 37 seconds. And so I can, I have time to get a drink, to get a snack. You know, you've got everybody else that's rolling into class last minute or late. You got bedhead, you've got like pajamas on, not the freshmen, freshly pressed shirt, look good. It's like, all right, you, you'll learn. You'll learn later. And so I hope that you've had a, a good start to this semester, whether that means simply, hey, it's the, about to go into the month of September. Summer's coming to a close. And so no matter who you are, where you are, thank you for choosing to be here. Um, we all need community, and I think that we would agree with that. This past summer, me and Angela, we got to get away, and we were able to go visit her family in Florida. We went and spent a few days at the beach. We went to Daytona. Um, and, and a little history, when Angela and I were working camp together, we went to Daytona, and uh, we did an event down there, so it's kind of cool for us to go back now that we're married, and we went to Daytona not expecting to meet a particular group of people, but we found out who the druggies of Daytona were, and, so, and let me explain, because that sounds very strange for a pastor to say, uh, anyways, there's a free concert one of the evenings, and we went, and we were on the little walkway. We got some ice cream, and we're like, hey, let's just hang out. Let's listen to the band. And so there's this open square, and we can see that there's a lot of people that are starting to fill up the area, and we're like, man, there's some sketchy people out here. And then there's some people that are on vacation with their families, and so we're like, all right, let's pick our seat wisely. Um, there weren't necessarily chairs out, but it was a big open area, and there was a, a bench, and there were several other benches, and I saw what looked to be a nice lady that was sitting on a bench, and so we're like, hey, let's sit on the brick wall behind that person. Looks like a normal area to sit. And so we're enjoying our marble slab ice cream, uh, and we're just enjoying that, and this lady was in front of us, and, and then I noticed like things began to get a little sketchier. So off to our left, about 100 yards, maybe 50 yards, there was this crazy lady. And by crazy lady, she was older and very loud, uh, seemed to be the dominant person in her circle, if you know what I'm saying. Like, she was the one, she's kind of going around, you know, giving high fives, saying what's up. And she had these baggy pants on, which was strange. And so that was weird. And again, this nice lady in front of us, uh, but that began to change because this guy, became, he began to walk towards her. And I was like, man, this guy, I don't know what's going on, but he only had a vest. Like, he had shorts on, but he only had a vest on, which was weird. We're at the beach. I get that. He just has a vest on, but his vest 
it was a Confederate flag vest to make matters. I, I mean, I, whatever, I don't care what your opinions are on that. It was just weird. This bald-headed man with a goatee, Confederate flag, flag vest, who's bringing food to this woman. I'm like, all right. So now he's in front of us. And, you know, there's another sketchy guy right beside him. And I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I didn't say anything to Angela, but I'm like, man, this is a terrible spot to sit. And, um, well, the crazy lady, crazy lady who was way over on the other side apparently knew the people that were sitting in front of us because she comes bounding over with a thing of sour cream. Except I don't think it was sour cream in that. I really don't. And she gave it to him. I don't know what was in there. I don't really care to know what was in there, but she gave it to him. And then a few moments later, the nice lady on the bench took the food that Confederate flag vest guy gave her and smashes it on his bald head. And I'm like, what is going on? Angela, I think it's time we find a new place to sit. And so crazy lady is still back over here with her peeps. But then there was a moment where we began putting the pieces together. You see, earlier that day, we were on the pier. And there was, there was this younger guy who kind of looked like just a beach bum who was walking a small puppy. And we were like, oh, it's a nice little puppy. And he's like, yeah, it's a rescue. Well, that guy with the puppy comes walking up to the crazy lady. And I'm like, this is getting weird. Not only that, but there was a guy who was sitting on a bench, and he was making flowers out of, like, bamboo strands. That, and we had passed him multiple times. Earlier in the day, that guy comes walking up to the crazy lady. And I'm like, like what are we seeing here? And then the police come, and they motion to the crazy lady, and they're like, get over here. And she's like, oh, what's going on? So she goes, and a few other guys go over there, and I'm telling you, I don't know what was going on. But here's the moral of the story, other than it's just a crazy moment in Daytona. Even though I'm not, who, I'm not sure if these were like druggies or what, but what was clear is that they actually had community. Like they all knew each other. The crazy lady would see somebody and she's like, what's up? And she's waving across the, t- uh, across the thing. And honestly, Angela and I talked about it. Like even they need community. Every single person that you know in your life needs community. And so I want to challenge you that as we go into this semester, that you would find biblical community. Whether it's here, man, we welcome you here. You know, we're selling the shirts that says community. Why? Because we want this to be a place that's a place of community. But if it's not here, that's okay. Find somewhere, though, and plug in and commit yourself to that. For far too long, believers have gone and just sat in a pew and said, okay, I'm good, and I'm going to go about my life. And so we invite you to be a part of our community this semester And we hope that you'll commit to that. Well, if you have your Bible, I want you to open it up to Genesis chapter 6. Throughout this semester, we're going to be working through a theme called underdogs. Underdogs. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on a team and you felt like the underdog. Or maybe you played a sport. You did some type of activity and you're like, man, I feel like I'm always the underdog. Well, we see in Scripture there are people that I would call them underdogs. It's people that God did something through them that we wouldn't expect. Maybe God chooses somebody that we wouldn't expect. He does something in somebody's life that we wouldn't expect. And so throughout this semester, we're going to walk through some old school Bible stories that we were taught as children. Angela wanted me to get the old school flannel board. I don't know if you remember those. You might be too too young for those. But back in the day when I grew up, 
you've got a flannel board, so you got like flannel Moses and then his flannel sheep and the flannel staff and all that. Thought about buying that and using it, decided not to. But we're going to be working through some of these old school stories, so maybe you'll have some of those flannel pictures. And we're going to be talking about Noah, who I would say Noah's a guy that God does something incredible through. And like many people in the Bible, we may say, man, why in the world would you do it through Noah? But we'll see some of that in just a moment. Now, before we dive into Genesis chapter 6, we need to get a little background. Because if we're honest, the book of Genesis, if you've ever read the beginning, if you've ever read the first few chapters, it is straight up crazy. And when I say crazy, honestly, it's pretty weird at times. Now, listen, we can be a Christian and we can read God's word and we can say, God, like, that's pretty weird. Like, you know, there's things that don't, it's like, man, it doesn't happen like that now. We got people living 900 years, uh, you know, they're on the earth. We'll read that in just a moment. But in Genesis chapter 1, we see where God breathes creation out. He speaks and creation takes place. We see that the earth and the plant, the universe we see all these things. If you walk outside, and you, I don't know if you ever have these moments where you just, you look at everything around you, you see the sky, maybe you take a moment, you look at the stars, you're like, wow, like God spoke this into being. When I look at that, it reminds me, there is no way that this could just happen. The fact that you and I could have a conversation and talk about what we see and talk about creation, to me, it's just proof that, man, Genesis chapter 1 is true. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God speaks and things come into being. In Genesis chapter 3, though, we know that things take a terrible turn because creation turns its back on the creator. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, uh, they eat the fruit that God says, hey, don't eat that. So they turn their back on God, and we see that that had negative repercussions that take place in Genesis chapter 4. We see where... uh, a guy named Cain, the son, of, uh, the son of Adam and Eve, kills his brother Abel. And from that point, things get worse and worse. It reminds me of the time I was here. And I've, since I've been here, I have grilled hundreds, hundreds of hamburgers and hot dogs. I don't know if you like to grill. I enjoy grilling. I don't necessarily enjoy grilling hundreds of anything, though. And there was a moment where it was a Sunday afternoon, church was about to be done, a football team was here, and we were going to grill for them. And so I'm grilling all these burgers, and there's some guys that are helping me, and they're these cheap burgers, and grease is just dripping down in there, and flames are shooting up, and I'm managing it, so I'm managing it. I've got it sort of under control, but I'm like, all right, guys, i got to go talk to the football team. Y'all got this? Maybe? Okay, all right, y'all got this. I'm going to go upstairs. And so I went upstairs, and I'm like, hey, guys, you know, I check on things. I come back down. I look through the glass window, and there are flames that are just, like, shooting up. And I'm like, this took a terrible turn for the worst. Something is wrong. And so we get it under control. But this is the moment in Genesis chapter 3 where things have gotten crazy. Things have taken a terrible turn. And so we're going to start reading in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. But if you're taking notes, I want to give you this point. We're going to work through three points tonight. But the first is this. There was a culture of corruption. Now let's read about this corruption. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 says this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. Now, if you have a pen, if you have something, I want you to underline, circle, do something. Sons of God. That's a very interesting choice of words um, that, that we see here in Scripture. We'll see it again in just a moment. The sons of God, that the daughters of men were attractive. They took 
as their wives as they chose. Verse 3, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide. Other virgins say, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse 4, the Nephilim, the giants, they were in the earth in those days. This reminds me of uh, uh, Goliath. You know, so we, we understand that, that giant, again, there's some crazy things, but at the same time, we understand that, uh, that on this earth right now, I don't know what the tallest person in the world would be, probably over eight feet, something like that, but we know in the Guinness Book of World, uh, of world whatever, Guinness Book of World Records, that's it, um, we know that there are tall people. And so here we, the Nephilim, the giants, these were super tall people, big people. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God, again, it's the second time we see it, underline it, because it's very interesting. Uh, the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So during this time, there are some mighty men out there. There's some men of renown. That's what this verse said. Now, we can't go into detail this. I do encourage you, if you want to, if you want to inquire what this is about, the sons of God, though, that's a very interesting phrase. There's a lot of different opinions. But here's the point of everything that we're about to discuss here. In verse 1 through 7, we see that that. Uh, creation has turned its back on, on the creator, that corruption has now taken place, and violence has entered the world. Uh, rape, murder. If we go on to read uh, verse 5, it says, If the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. We're talking about sexual immorality, lust, murder, rape. The list can go on and on and on. But the earth has been filled with evil. It says the Lord saw this. He saw this wickedness. Verse 6 says this, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. You might want to underline that. But we see that God's heart is now broken because his creation, mankind whom he created in his image, has now rebelled against him. Creation has turned its back on the creator, and God's heart is now grieved. Verse 7 says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then if you skip down in verse 11, we see this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. You know, you look at our world, there's a lot of violence that goes on today. That violence has been going on ever since Genesis chapter 4. Cain kills Abel, and that violence continues. It says, the earth was filled with, with violence. Verse 12, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their own way on the earth. It was self-inflicted corruption. Verse 13 says, and God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, we need to understand that this corruption, it is self-induced. The, the sinfulness that's now taking place, we go back to Genesis chapter 3. We see where Adam and Eve, they choose to sin against God. It was self-induced. Nobody was twisting their arm. Satan did deceive them, but they made this choice. And from that point on, we see where people are making a choice to rebel against God. Satan began this great rebellion against God when he rebelled and God cast him out of heaven. And then he went to the earth, and he deceived mankind to continue that rebellion. He tricked Adam and Eve. And then he continued to do that, and we see in Genesis chapter 6, which is hundreds of years after Adam and Eve, 
hundreds where mankind is still rebelling against God, where Satan and his demons continue to trick and deceive and to, to, to lead people down a path of destruction and corruption. And verse 12 again says, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. It was self-induced. It was something that they had done. It, I don't know if you've ever had the moment where you've gone through a semester or a class, and somehow you made it through 99% of the semester without cracking the book open, and you're like, score! And then there's the final exam, and you're like, oh, no. And you start to sweat a little bit. And so you pull the all-nighter, and you're drinking Monsters, five-hour energy, and you have this realization, I did this to myself. Why did I do this? These people, we see from Adam all the way to Genesis chapter 6, this is something they did to themselves. They turned their back on God. They rejected him. And we see that there is a culture of corruption. See, the problem of corruption existed in Noah's day, and it still exists in our day because of this. If you look at verse 5, it says this, Every intention of the thoughts of his heart, of mankind's heart, was only evil continually. Now think about that. Again, that's another verse where you circle it, you underline it, and you say, Man, God, is this what my heart looks like? Is this me? And the answer would be yes. That this heart that, that Adam and Eve had when they rebelled against God, every child that they had and everybody that came from their DNA had the same heart, a heart that was prone to wander, a heart that was prone to turn its back on God. And so we see this culture of corruption that now exists. We see it in Noah's day. We see it in our day. But what's interesting is that this corruption is actually what led somebody, C.S. Lewis, the uh, great thinker, an author, to write these words. He says this, my argument against God, because he used to be an atheist, he says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But listen to what he says, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see, C.S. Lewis, he saw the corruption, he saw the brokenness, and that actually led him to believe that there was a God that was holy and a God that was just. And we know that you and I have experienced this corruption, we've experienced this brokenness, and not a single person exists who hasn't experienced pain or caused pain as a result of the corruption that has taken place on this earth. And all of this is very depressing and sad, and it leads us to ask the question, is there any hope? Short answer is yes. Look at Genesis chapter 6. Let's go back to verse 7. It says, So the Lord said, I'll blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. Now, look at verse 8. Don't miss this. You might even want to underline the first verse in verse 8. But, but Noah found favor. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. In the midst of corruption, in the midst of despair, there is one man, Noah, who found grace in the eyes of God. So point number one was the culture of corruption, but point number two is the God of grace. Now let's look back at verse eight and continue to go through verse nine. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He wasn't perfect, 
But the, God's word does say he was righteous, blameless in his generation. And then this interesting phrase right here. Again, if you're an underliner, I am. I like to underline, circle things. It says, Noah walked with God. Throughout the entire Bible, we see where there are two people that are given that designation. One is Noah, and one is Noah's great-granddad. His name was Enoch. Now, if you turn to Genesis chapter 4, we'll just look, because it's interesting for us to just kind of walk through this. Now, when we see in Genesis, just a little tidbit, the basis of everything in Scripture has its foundation in Genesis. We see the doctrine of sin. We see where Jesus is, is proclaimed in Genesis chapter 3. Big word, proto-evangelion. Big word, crazy. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says, uh, and he's speaking to Satan, and it, it's prophecy that Jesus will one day come and he will redeem. And we see all throughout Genesis, there, there are these doctrines that are formed. And so I've heard somebody say, well, is Genesis that important? Yes, it is important. You remove Genesis from the Bible, you have no doctrine uh, of, of original sin. And so for you and I, the book of Genesis is important. Now let's just look at a few other parts. Genesis chapter 4, we see that after uh, Cain has killed Abel, look towards the end of chapter 4, verse 25. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. Verse 26, And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh, not Enoch, who I said a moment ago. It says, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Interesting. We just sang about that. Call upon the name of the Lord. So this is something they were doing in the beginning. They were calling upon the name of God. And so we see that. And then we see in chapter 5, we see this lineage of Seth. Now, we won't take time to go through each of these things. But if you scroll down, or not scroll, uh, if you look down in your Bible, maybe you, maybe you can scroll um, but look at verse 21. It says, Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. Now, you may have heard Methuselah before because Methuselah was the oldest guy that ever lived in the Bible. Remember, I said there were some crazy things. This guy lived over 900 years. Super old guy. It says, after he begot Methuselah, Enoch <clears throat> walked with God. Enoch walked with God. It said 300 years and had sons and daughters. Verse 23, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So this guy, Enoch, Noah's great-granddad, didn't die. So he was just living his life, walking with God, and God took him up. He didn't die. Pretty crazy. And then we see a few generations later, we see in verse 29, or 28, I should say, Lamech lived 182 years and had a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground that the Lord has cursed. And so we see Noah had this relationship with God. And we can infer that probably his dad and his granddad taught him about God, but we also know that Enoch, his great granddad, with somebody that walked with God. And we see that this is passed down to Noah. And Noah has this relationship he, he, with God. He's not perfect. Again, there's nobody in Scripture outside of God himself who's sinless. We see where God sends his son, Jesus. Jesus lives a sinless life. But other than Jesus, 
Everybody else sins, even Noah. But Noah walks with God. He wasn't perfect. He understood that he was created in God's image. He understood that his heart, again, like we read in verse 5, that his heart was prone to turn against God. And so Noah's life would have been marked by faith in God and repentance of sin to where I, constantly turning from my sin and putting my faith in God. This is what Noah's life would have been marked by. And so we see that he, he walks with God. He's living a life of repentance and faith and submission to God. See, Noah's story is primarily known for the flood of judgment with the, the physical flood that would come down. But before the physical flood of water, there was a different flood that came down. It was a flood of grace that God poured out on Noah. Reminds me of this song, How He Loves. The, the lyric says, if grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. And in the story of Noah, we see where there's a lot of people that died because of their sins, because of their rebellion against God. But before that flood, Noah is flooded with God's grace, sinking in that. It reminds me of the time I went rafting for the first time. Anybody ever been rafting? I was 12 years old, thought I was the stuff, going rafting, looking good in my life jacket, got it on. I'm like, all right, let's raft the Ekoe. I had some friends from our church that had some rafts, and so we were paddling, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. We actually got to do it several times that day, and the third time we were going to do it, I'm like, all right, let's do this thing. And we get to this one part in the water, I believe it's called Double Suck, and there's just two parts where it like sucks you down, and you've got to paddle your way out. And we get there, and one by one, people are just getting launched out, and it's like, there goes my dad, there goes my brother, there goes that guy. There goes that other guy. And, and like, next, oh, next thing I know, it's just me and a drill sergeant of a woman screaming, paddle, paddle. And 12-year-old Madison is just digging. I'm just paddling and paddling. Next thing I know, boom, I am under the water. Has that ever happened to you? And my head, I come up for air, and I hit the raft. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, like, I can't come up for air. And if you've ever been rafting, those rafts aren't light especially when you fill them with water. And so if you've ever gone underwater and you weren't expecting to do it, then you come up gasping for air. And you're like, <gasps> well, imagine me doing that, except I bump my head on a raft and I'm like, and I don't get any air. It's just water. And I'm freaking out, but I was surrounded by it. Now have that picture in your mind because Noah was flooded with grace. He was completely immersed in it. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, throughout Scripture, grace comes in different forms by God. But in this particular instance, in Noah's story, grace came in a unique command. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. God tells Noah, he says this, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. He tells him, make, you, make an ark of gopher wood. Now, I don't know what gopher wood is, but God tells him, hey, make an ark. Now, throughout, uh, God further tells Noah, if you look at verse 17, it says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant. Again, there's a word that you would want to circle, because all throughout the Old Testament, you see where God makes covenants. We see where he, he makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with David. We see in the prophets, he makes a new covenant. And so this is one of those words where you circle it. 
And you say, okay, God, what are you saying here? You see, this, this flood of grace began as a command to make an ark. God was making a way for Noah to have salvation. He said, make an ark. But God tells Noah in verse 18, he is making a covenant with him. God is making a promise of hope and grace to Noah that he will see him through the storm. Now, before we move further, let's talk a little bit about this ark. Now, what's interesting is that the Hebrew word for ark is actually the same word that's used in the story of Moses. Remember when Moses was born and, and, and his parents put him in the, in the basket, if you will, and they float him down they, because they don't want to kill him and they want him to live, so they put him in there? Well, that little basket that was made in this ark, it's the same word. It's got the same root. It's the picture of refuge. It's this picture of, of being inside and being safe and secure. Isn't that interesting that God would use that word here, this word ark, and that he, this would be the form of grace, if you will. Now, here's just a few points about this ark, three things. First, the ark was God's decision. The ark was God's decision. It, it was his idea. He initiated it. This wasn't Noah's idea. He wasn't brainstorming, okay, how can we avoid this judgment? No, the ark was God's decision. Genesis 6.14, we just read it. God tells Noah, make an ark of gopher wood. That was his decision. But not just that. Not only was the decision to build the ark God's, but the design was God's. So it was on God's terms. It wasn't just, hey, hey, you build an ark. No, no, no. And then Noah's like, okay, how do I build an ark? Is it a small ark, like a little basket, or is it a big one? Like, No, God says specifically, here's how you build it. Noah had never built, built an ark before. And based on what we see in Scripture, it's pretty clear, or at least we can infer that <clears throat> up until this point, it hadn't even rained. Again, remember, Genesis is pretty crazy. But we see where this would be the first time where rains would be flooded down on the earth. So it, was this, so it was God's decision, it was God's design, but we also see that God shut the door to this ark. Now look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 16. It says this. It says, you shall make a window for the ark. You shall finish it to, excuse me, you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower and second and third decks. And then, well, if you, and if you're wondering this, because a lot of people wonder this about the ark, say, how in the world could all the animals fit on the ark? Is it possible? Is it possible that the animals would have fit? And the answer to that question is absolutely. Because if you look on down in verse 20, it says of the birds after their kind and animals after their kind. You know, if we look at science and the way that scientists divide animals and species and all that sorts of things, that many would say that's, that's what's being said right here, kind. And so the answer would be yes, absolutely, that animals could be put on the ark and everybody would fit. It's not some magical door where you walk in and poop, you know, and, it's, and everything fits. You know, and so, yes, it fit. Now, continue to look. Chapter 7, verse 16 says, now the flood, excuse me, says, so that, so those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded. Now, get this. Again, I'd underline this. It said, and the Lord shut him in. Now, it's the little things in Scripture that sometimes we need to pay attention to. The Lord shut him in. So Noah didn't shut himself in. It didn't begin with God, and then, okay, God, I got it from here. I'll shut the door. No. Again, it was God's his decision. It was his design, and then God's the one that shut the door. 
which meant that when Noah and his family went in, that they wouldn't be trusting in themselves. They wouldn't be trusting in their own design. They wouldn't be trusting in their own ability to shut the door. No, when it was all said and done, they simply rested in the fact that God was the one who shut the door. God was the one who sealed them in. God was the one who made sure that they were secure in there. And so they were trusting and resting in God's security. And so we see that this God of grace, he pours out grace on Noah and his family in this form of an ark. It's this picture of salvation. Now you may be wondering, okay, well, what about all these other people? Because if God is a God of grace and only Noah got grace, does that mean that these other people had no hope? The people that died that day. And I would say to, the, to answer that question is yes. God did actually offer grace to these people. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, you can either listen to me or you can take, take it, uh, put it in your notes and look at it later. But this is what we see in Scripture. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned but cast them into hell, committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah a herald or a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now you say, Master, why in the world would we read that? This passage says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. At the time when the floodwaters came, Noah was 600 years old. That means Noah had been preaching and had been walking with God for hundreds of years. Think about how many people Noah would have come into contact with over these hundreds and hundreds of years. Think about Noah's, uh, his granddad, great-granddad, Enoch. Enoch walked with God. Said he, wa said he walked with him for 300 years. How many people would Enoch have met in those three time of 300 years? So these people would have known about God. They would have heard, hey, there is a God, and yet they chose to rebel against him. They chose to turn their back on him. And yet we see that Noah was a man who continually preached righteousness. He walked with God. That's what he did. That's who he was. Again, we see in other passages such as 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. We see that God is patient in the fact that in all the years that it took Noah to build this ark, throughout that entire time, he's still preaching righteousness. God could have caused a flood immediately to take over. And yet again, God is patient. God was patient. 2 Peter 3, 9, the end of it says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So just as Adam and Eve were held responsible for their rebellion against God, so were those who rebelled against God in Noah's day. People that would have heard about Noah and his message. I mean, this ark was so big that people would have seen this thing that's being built. Even that fact of, hey, Noah, what you building? God told me to build an ark of gopher wood, so I'm building it. And again, in the flannel board picture, a lot of times we, we see him making fun of Noah and they're laughing at him. That's probably true. It's probably what happened because Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was bold in the fact of what he proclaimed. And so just as those who died in the flood that day when the floodwaters came, they were just, or God was just, in, in condemning them to hell because they rebelled against him. And God is still just today 
when there are those who live on this earth, they rebel against God and God condemns them to hell. And so there's nobody in hell who can look up at God and says, God, you were unfair. No, because they're the one that turned their back on God. They're the one that rejected in God. They are the one who stiff-armed God. They turned their back on the one who created them. And so we see that there's a culture of corruption. We see the God of grace. And lastly, we see the cry of confession. See, we know that Noah's grand, great-granddad walked with God. We know that Noah walked with God, but there was something that they confessed. There was something that they understood. There was something that greatly impacted everything about their life because Noah had overwhelming obedience, radical obedience. I mean, imagine if God told you, I want you to build an ark. And it's never rained You've got all these people around you that are like, what are you doing? What is, like, and, and it takes you year after year, and you're building, and you're building, and you're like, God told me to do it, so I'm, I'm going to do it. That's what Noah did. Now, what was it? What was it that made him do that? Let's look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 22. But, but right before that, what we see is that God has given the command to make the ark. He's given the instructions, the design. But look at verse 22. It's a beautiful verse. It's so simple and succinct. But says this, verse 22, says, Noah did this. That's what my version says. Noah did this. He did what God commanded him. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him in such a beautiful picture of Noah's relationship with God, where God says, hey, Noah, I need you to build an ark of gopher wood. All right. And he goes in and does it. I hope that can be said in my life. At the end of my life, if God told me to do something, it's like, okay, I'm going to do it. We see that Noah did that. But what, again, what, what's the underlying factor in Noah's life? Well, to understand this, I think we actually have to go to Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, if you will. No, Noah was an inductee into this. And this is a chapter full of people who are full of faith. We see them throughout the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 7 says this. It says, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So we see great faith, but watch this. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. This is the key. Verse 13 says this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged or confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, this is something that Noah would have understood. Again, this is a key right here. Verse 14, for the people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Noah's confession, his acknowledgement, his understanding was that he was not made for this world. This world wasn't his home. That's what he understood. And so because he understood that this world wasn't his home, it led him to do things that honestly you don't do at your home. Because Noah could have made himself comfortable. 
He could have, he could have just made himself comfortable and said, ah, you know, this flood, I don't know about that. I'm just going to do this. But no, he got uncomfortable for God because God ca- called him to do something because Noah understood that he was made for a different country. C.S. Lewis, again, I quoted him earlier. He writes this, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Noah understood that he was made for another world. He understood that this world was not his home, and so he was okay saying yes to whatever God would have him do because he was not living for this earth. He was living for another world. This was his cry of confession. He knew that earth was not his home. Now, as we close, Matthew chapter 24 says this, starting in verse 36, if you'll listen very closely. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Now, this is Jesus talking. We're talking about the end times. But, but, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when, when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. See, this chapter speaks of a judgment that will one day come, where judgment is going to come. Jesus will come back, and those who do not believe in God, those who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus, there will be a judgment, and they will be cast into hell. But there's a different flood. you got the flood of judgment. There's a flood of grace that's also available. This flood of grace is available. It was available to Noah. We saw it in the form of the ark. God made salvation available, but God has also made salvation available to you and I. And just, here's what we see. It's a beautiful picture because the ark for you and I is a beautiful picture of salvation because just as the ark was God's decision, the sacrifice of Jesus was God's decision. Just as God poured out his judgment on the ark, imagine this, the, the ark, the object of grace, received God's wrath when the flood waters came. Imagine those waters beating down on the ark. It's the same waters that beat down on people and that flooded their houses and their homes. So the ark endured the wrath of God on that day, but Noah was safe and secure inside the object of grace. And so Jesus endures the wrath of God for you and I. But the question is, are we going to be on the outside or are we going to be on the inside, held secure inside Jesus? Because the wrath that you and I deserve, if we are inside, it is wrath that Jesus took on him. And we see this picture. Just as the ark kept Noah and his family safe and secure, Jesus offers us safety and security. Where instead of us receiving this judgment, Jesus received it on himself and he offers us grace. And just as God shut the door on the ark, sealing Noah and his family in, God sends his Holy Spirit into you and to me and he seals us. We see this in the book of Ephesians where our salvation is secure not because of us, but because the Holy Spirit has sealed us. The door has been shut. And this is good news if you're a believer. So the question is, which flood will you endure? Will you endure a flood of judgment 
for your sin or you endure a flood of grace held secure just as Noah was inside safe secure as the wrath was being poured out on the object of grace see receiving the flood of judgment will cost you everything in the next life sure you can do whatever you want in this life but in the next life it'll cost you everything but receiving the flood of grace will cost you everything in this life but in the next life you'll spend eternity with the creator of the universe and the creator of you so if you would just bow your heads with me right now the invitation tonight is simple a flood of grace is being offered to you and the question is will you turn from your sin and receive this grace will you place your faith in Jesus knowing that judgment is coming but also knowing that salvation is available will you receive it you say Madison I've already received this my question to you is are you living like this is your home or can you say with Noah this isn't my home I'm made for another world and one day we're going to see just as we read in Revelation there's going to be a new heaven and there's going to be a new earth and those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ they will live for all eternity with the creator so right now, if you're in the room and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, in this time of singing, I want to invite you to ask the question, do you have a relationship with God? Which flood will you endure? I'll be off to your right. If you have questions after the night's over, I want to invite you to come and talk to me if you have questions about anything that I've talked about. But I invite you tonight, and not just me, but Jesus invites you into his arms, and he says, hey, I will pay he says, I have already paid for your life. Will you receive his grace? Father, we thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing. Would you speak right now? Thank you for the story of Noah and the picture that you give us of your son, Jesus. And I pray that we would understand that each passage in scripture is important and it points to you. God, as we sing this next song, I pray that our eyes and our minds, our hearts will be fixed on you. In Christ's name.
Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love through the on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil sing that my anchor holds within the veil Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love through the storm. sound Oh may I then in him be found Just in his righteousness alone For this I'll stand before the throne Oh 